Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all again. It was so funny this morning, I was talking with my family about going to two services, and my daughter said, you know, Dad, there's there's a really good thing about having two services, which is, if you mess up the first one, you can do it again. (laughs) So, you know, I guess this morning I just got one shot, so we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. Pressure's on, Benkai. So, uh, so we've got uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 to look at this morning. You can open your Bible there, Nehemiah chapter 5. As you're turning there, um, I want to remind you that we gather today under that great truth that we heard last week from Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 20. Do you remember what that said? It's that banner of God that's spoken over us that says, our God will fight for us. Amen. And I know that you've all been out in the world this week. You have been working on your own section of the wall. Uh, You know in your own heart and mind how you would describe what this week was like for you. Um, And God knows the things that you've endured through. But he calls us here today into this church as the people of God. And he calls us here in that restful promise that God is going to fight our battles. And I've been meditating on Ephesians chapter 6 this week, and I was so pleased to hear how many people were reading along all throughout the week of Ephesians chapter 6, and I've been praying that scripture over you, and I've been asking that we would take up the whole armor of God and that we would stand victorious in the Lord, knowing, right, that, that God's doing a good work among us here. But, but any time a good work is happening, we can expect that there will be opposition, and therefore we, we've already this morning taken up the weapon of our worship, and now we're going to wield the two-edged sword of the Word of God. And, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is a unique instrument, isn't it? Because in one sense, it's, it's used to resist our enemy, the devil. The sword is used against outside opposition, but then in another sense, we know that an enemy lies within, that that our own rebellion exists within these walls, and therefore, we need the Word of God to cut us, to convict us, to challenge us. And so, you see, church, we, we have the Word of God as, as a purifying tool in our lives. And, and I like to think of God's Word at work in the heart of a believer more like a scalpel than a sword, Uh, that the Bible is a very sharp blade in the skilled hand of my great physician, Dr. Jesus. And and he's cutting away at the things that are hindering. And and it's, it's for my good. It's for my healing. It's so that I can continue to have a life that is built upon him. It's so that I could become everything that Christ wants me to be. And therefore, God skillfully uses his word like a sharp blade within my heart. And Nehemiah has been a book that's been about building with the good and the bad and the ugly of it all. And today we're going to see how there is some opposition that's going to come. And it's going to continue to confront the good and the bad and the ugly that's in our own lives. And we've already seen that at the midsection of this book, at the midpoint of the building of the wall, that there was opposition that came. Last week in Nehemiah chapter 4, we could consider that opposition as external opposition, that these guys named Sanballat and Tobiah and a whole army came and tried to oppose this work of building the wall. 
And they were pictures to us of the spiritual adversaries that we face as believers in Christ. But, but right, God's good hand was upon Nehemiah for his good works, and so the work continued on. You know, when the mocking came from Sambalat and Tobiah, it says that the people continued to work because they had a mind to work. They were progressing forward. Uh, then when the enemies came and they conspired to attack with confusion within the walls, the enemies, as they were planning their attack, uh, Nehemiah caught wind of it, and he stationed the people to fight the battle. He told the people to take up the, the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. You know, with one hand, they were to continue to progress forward in the work that God was calling them to do, and yet, in the other hand, they also needed to be on the defense. They also needed to make sure that they were, understand that there would be warfare against them. And what we saw last week, which was so beautiful, is that the victory was theirs. You know, God's people stood and they resisted the opposition from the outside. But guys, this opposition doesn't stop there in the book of Nehemiah. As we come into chapter 5, we're going to see that more opposition arises. Only this time, the opposition doesn't come from the outside. Rather, the opposition comes from the inside. The opposition came from within God's people as they were fighting against one another. One commentator, John Vernon McGee, said something powerful about the difference between the opposition that you see in chapter 4 in chapter 5, he says this, in the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was join it. In Nehemiah chapter 4 is an opportunity, church, for us to see that when strife and division and opposition exists in and among God's people, we have to be quick to recognize it and to rid ourselves of it, or else we're going to self-destruct. And so there's some great principles here in Nehemiah chapter 5 for us to gather today. We're going to see lessons about conflicts in church, lessons for people in leadership, and lessons for how God's justice needs to be lived out through his people. Amen? Amen. So let's take a look now, beginning at verse 1. This is what it says. Let me pray before we read. Lord God, we thank you that this is your church. Jesus, you are the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so we look to you today as our pastor, Jesus. God, that you would guide us and you'd shepherd us into all truth. And God, that we would love you. We would repent before you for the things that we have erred, especially in the ways that we have erred against one another. Lord, unify your church today. God, bring unity to your people because how is the world going to see that we are your disciples unless we have love for one another? And so God, help us to love one another because if, if we can't love the people we see, how can we claim to love a God that we cannot see? And so God, help us to love today. Help us to serve each other today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So verse 1 says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So here in verse 1, we see that there's a big issue that comes up. 
there was an outcry, and it says that it was a great outcry. That word great was used to speak of the, the scope of how big the building project of the wall was. It was huge. And as that great work was happening, there arose a great outcry. There was a serious issue that arose among God's people who were trying to make progress with the Lord, but, but what happened was that there was an issue that happened among the people where they were not getting along. And, and this issue was so big, in fact, that we see that the work of the building of the wall had to stop in order for the people to resolve the outcry. Notice something in chapter 5 today as we read. You will find no mention of any building in this chapter. And it's a commentary on the fact that when the people of God are fighting each other, we aren't doing ministry like we ought to be doing. The, the work stops because we have to so focus inward on ourselves. But it says that that word outcry, is a, it's a word that comes up often in the, New Test, or the Old Testament, rather. And we know that the Jews had a long history of oppression and slavery. It's as though, you know, they lived on sort of this roller coaster ride of liberation and freedom and liberation and freedom. They'd come out of slavery and then, and then back into freedom. And, and they were always sort of on this journey. And any time that the Jews got into a situation where they were being oppressed or they were being enslaved, what would they do? They would cry out. And the wonderful thing that we see in scriptures is that when we read of any outcry from the people of God, God always hears it. And what comes when God hears us is an immediate response. God comes to deliver his people and to judge their enemies. And for instance, there was this outcry that happened as the wickedness was arising within Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and, and the people gave an outcry to the Lord, and God came and he judged and he delivered. There was an, also an outcry as the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and the people began to groan. They began to cry out, and God came, and he judged, and he delivered his people. The point is simple, guys. When God's people cry out to him, God hears their cries. His ears, as it says in the Psalms, are inclined from heaven to hear the cries of his people. When God hears your cries, he rises up, and he seeks to come down and to deliver you. So what was this outcry that was found in the book of Nehemiah all about? Well, it says there that it was an outcry against the Jewish brothers. There was something going on among God's people. They were not crying out because the Egyptians were oppressing them. They weren't crying out because the Babylonians or the Persians were oppressing them. They were crying out because God's own people were oppressing each other. So let's look at the next several verses, and we're going to see a series of three outcries that get lifted up from the people. The first one we see in verse 2. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. That's the first outcry. The second outcry is in verse 3. They said, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And then the third outcry we see in verses 4 through 5. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money 
for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now, you probably notice as we read those three outcries how they increase in severity. The first outcry came because there was hunger among the people. There was a famine in the, in the land of Israel, in the region of Judah. There was a lack of the most basic, fundamental human need that we have, which is that families were going without food. Husbands were working long days on the wall. Uh, mothers were not able to uh, receive enough food to feed their children. And, and we all know that food is a basic necessity. Every single human being has the human right to these basic needs. Food, water, clothing, and shelter. But because of the famine, those basic needs were becoming sparse in Judah. There was a lack of food in Israel, and so the people began to cry out. And and look, famines happen. Troubling times come upon nations. This is something that just happens, and no one's necessarily at fault for the famine per se, but but what did the people do? Well, the people's natural and God-given instinct when you're hungry is to do something about it, to take some kind of action to find food. And so the first outcry says, the people said, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now, the second outcry, which was, Uh, In order for these parents to feed their children, they had to sell their possessions and their properties. Look in verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And so their first basic human need to go was shelter, as if that was a luxury, right? in order to provide for this more immediate need, which was food. And so they could you know, do without owning a home. They could, they could go without having a field or a vineyard if it meant providing for their daily bread. But sadly, no one should ever have to come to a situation like that. You know, no one should ever have to choose between food or shelter, water or clothing. But many people do in our world even to this day have to choose between those things. And look, it's often the church, it's often the followers of God who are those who come to help in these times and in these issues. Now, the third outcry was the greatest of them all. Notice how the severity of the problem just gets worse as it goes. Verse 4 and 5, it says, And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as of the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. They're saying we're we're of the same people. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So look, this food shortage in Israel led families to mortgage their homes in order to put food on the table. And because... Ultimately, Persia was still in control. They had to pay taxes to the king. And so what they were doing is they were trying to hold on to what little they had left. And so what what did they do? They asked for loans. And those loans 
were ultimately used to pay for food. No one should ever have to have a loan to get food. So there were loans that were being given, but these loans ended up having high interest rates. And these struggling families, what would happen is they continued to plummet into the depths of slavery and poverty until the unthinkable happened, which was this. In order for the people to pay off their debts, these desperate parents used their children as debt collateral and essentially sold their children into slavery. They, the only way then that they could redeem their children out of slavery was if they paid off their debts. But the problem is, is now they had no fields, they had no vineyards that they could work at to, in order to gain enough money in order to redeem their children out of slavery. And so these people were essentially bound to poverty with no power to help at all. Children were enslaved. And these families made a great outcry. And there's just, there's something so dark about our human fallenness that we as humans would use other humans as means of currency. Uh, Our sin-stricken world is so clearly shown when wealth is built on the backs of people that are bound up in poverty. And we call this slavery, call this human trafficking. It's a little softer way of saying it in our world today. But, But slavery is alive and well today. In the ancient world, people were often sold into slavery to pay off their debts. But, but guys, today, men, women, and children in all parts of the world, even in our own nation, are treated like property. You don't have to look very far to see the devastating effects of hunger, of greed, and of slavery in our world. And so there was an outcry of these people. They, they were crying out because they had no food. They sold their homes and, and their fields to buy food. And then when the food ran out, they sold their children into slavery. But now these children were not being sold to other foreign nations. They were being sold to their own brethren, which tells us this, guys, is that God's own people were enslaving one another. The, the oppression was not coming from the outside. It's not like they were being slaves in Egypt, or slaves in Persia, or slaves in Babylon. They were slaves in Israel. Israelites were enslaving Israelites. And there was an outcry that made its way to the ears of Nehemiah. And look at verse 6, how Nehemiah responds. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So Nehemiah is this great and godly leader, and we've been seeing just all the ways that he He led the people there, and he heard about what was going on, and it says that he became very angry, which is an appropriate response if you would hear of this kind of oppression. Those words, I became very angry, have the idea of indignation or a furious and hot anger. In fact, it's the same word used for Sanballat when he became angry at the success of the Jews. Now Nehemiah is getting angry at the failure of the Jews. And and this is a sign that Nehemiah is a man who cares about God's justice, who cares about basic human rights, and and he shares God's heart for humanity. And there's things, guys, that are being done today, again, in our world to men, women, and children who are created in the image of God that deserve an outcry from the church. 
and I'll be the first to admit it, it is easy to just kind of be in your, your thing. Just kind of look and take care of yourself. And look, I, I stand as one who um, wants to be stirred up by God's heart. And I thank God that there are so many faith-filled men and women, so many faith-filled families in this church who cry out for those who are oppressed, who have burdened hearts for hurting people, who are people of prayer, and not just people of prayer, but people of action, especially for people who have no voice. And friends, there's a lot of injustices that deserve outcries from the church. And I just want to let you know this, is that when you cry out, God hears it, and God moves. But I love what Nehemiah does here in verse 7, that Nehemiah hears about these injustices, and then he does something. Look at verse 7, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So first we see that Nehemiah is angry, which again is an appropriate response to this kind of oppression. Anger, when it's a righteous anger, is a good thing. And Jesus demonstrated right anger at several times in the Gospels. And it was always uh, that Jesus would become angry when God's people were oppressing each other. And so Nehemiah, like Jesus, became angry, but look at what it says. It says, after he counseled with himself, or after serious thought, he brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He rebuked the leaders for the sins that they were committing against their own people. Now, when a godly leader becomes angry about injustice, they do something about it. And Nehemiah took the anger that he felt, and it wasn't kind of like a flash in the pan, pan anger where, you know, shaking his fist. He, he took a righteous anger, and he counseled with himself. And that means that first, he did this. He asked himself, am I participating in this injustice? Am I part of the issue? He considered himself first, and then after deep thought, he took action. So these are the appropriate steps of response to any time we see oppression or injustice. Get righteously angry. And then seriously think about what's making you angry. And then ask if you have any part to play in the issue. And consider yourself first. And then do something about it. That's the steps that we see Nehemiah taking. So what did he do? It says he brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He rebukes the leaders for their wrong actions. So he went directly to those people who were causing the outcry. They were the ones that were living in comfort and security. Most likely, these are the ones who had had children sold to them as debt collateral and now were enslaving the, the people's daughters. And Nehemiah goes right to the source of that issue, and he rebukes these leaders. He, he takes this truth of what's happening, which is basically just simple human rights, and he sticks it in their faces. He says, what's up with this? 
What's up with this? Nehemiah appealed to the nobles on several levels. He called them out for exacting interest on the people, for usury, which God commanded the Jews in the law not to do. Look at this. In Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, it says this. These are the words of the Lord to his people. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So Nehemiah's saying, you guys know you're not supposed to charge interest to your own people. And because you're doing this, what you're doing is you're bringing slavery into your own people. He's like, we've already been redeemed out of slavery. You don't have to look back far in our history, most recently with the Babylonians and the Persians or the Egyptians. You, don't, you know how we have been enslaved. Now we have this freedom. God is bringing us back into our land, and now we're enslaving each other? This is a joke. And so at the end of verse 8, we see the response of the nobles and the officials. It says they were silent and could not find a word to say. So what happened was a godly leader spoke truth to ungodly leaders. He used the law of God and he used basic human reason and he presented them with the truth. And the noble and the officials, it says there that they had nothing to say. They knew that this thing was wrong. So what's going to happen? Look at verses 9 through 11. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending money in grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this, this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So Nehemiah silenced the nobles and the officials when he confronted them with truth. The rebuke worked. The rebuke worked because the Jewish leaders knew that what they were doing was wrong. They knew that in their greed, they were building their own comforts off the afflictions of their own people that they were meant to be leading and protecting. So as a godly leader, Nehemiah instructed these leaders in repentance. You see, it's not enough to rebuke someone just to silence them as your opponent. We also need to be ready to give instruction for how a person can begin to walk rightly again. When, when we give a rebuke, we also need to give a plan to restore. And Nehemiah is telling the nobles and the officials what they need to do in order to stop this injustice. They needed to stop their usury. They needed to stop exacting interest, uh, unreasonable interests on these loans. They needed to restore land, possessions, properties. They had to take that interest that they were using as usury and give it back to the people because they had unjustly taken it. And so look at the next response of the nobles and the officials in verse 12. So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. 
Oh, I love that. I love to see this in the Word. There is nothing better than to see true repentance from people who know what they're doing is wrong. See, this is the blessing of true repentance when after being corrected with the truth, a person realizes the error of their ways and all of the excuses are brought to silence. All of the shifting of blame stops and they change their thinking and they begin to do what is right. Repentance is when someone hears the truth and says, we will do as you say. May we be this kind of people, amen? Will we be the kind of people where we know we will all make mistakes, every last one of us in this room? We will all sin, but will we be bold enough to right our wrongs? I respect Nehemiah for calling out his fellow leaders to repentance, but what I really respect is the nobles and the officials responding with repentance. This is the heart that we should all have because many times in our lives, guys, we will need to be corrected. At many points throughout our faith journey, we will need a rebuke from a brother or sister who loves us because repentance is not a one and done thing. It's an ongoing, continual uh, work of God as we grow in holiness. So when we receive a rebuke, would we receive it like the psalmist says in Psalm 141.5, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. See, when a godly person comes to correct me, which at many times in my life has had to happen, when a godly person comes to correct me, what is my response? Do I argue back? Do I throw out a bunch of excuses? Do I deflect blame? Do I try to cover it up? Or do I confess? Do I admit my wrongs? Do I seriously think about what a person is rebuking me for? Do I receive it and do I begin to make amends? And look, sometimes a person might rebuke you and it just isn't right. You know, I've had people try to correct me for things that I hadn't ever done. But there are times when I get corrected for things that I've done, and you have to be in a place where you're going to say, okay, I'm going to do something about that. Because rebukes aren't always accurate, they're not always biblical, but if they are, hopefully, you have godly people in your lives that when they see an error, they will love you enough as a brother or sister in Christ that they will call you out. Do you have people in your life like that? See, a rebuke is a good thing, and when it's done in a way like Nehemiah did, uh, it yields a ton of fruit. You know, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. In Acts, when Peter said that, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, he says, when we repent, times of refreshment come. See, it's like oil. It's like refreshing water when we begin to walk together again. But true correction needs to be done in humility and love and being ready to move forward together. So verses 12 through 13, after the nobles and the officials um, are rebuked by Nehemiah, he then tells them what they need to do. 
It says here, and I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So again, I love this part because um, the people weren't playing games anymore. He called the whole assembly together. He got the priests together. He made them swear. And he does this object lesson. He, he used this sign which essentially enacted this promise of God over the people, a promise of, of a blessing or a curse, which is old covenant type stuff. But this was the, the, the blessing and the curse. It said, if you promise to stop the usury and you give the people back their money, God will bless you. If you refuse to pay back the usury and you harden your heart, God will curse you. And then he does this object lesson. He takes the fold of his garment and he shakes it. He takes a piece of his clothing and he shakes it out. What's he doing? He's essentially shaking out his pockets. He's kind of pulling out his pockets and saying, look, <laughs> I've not taken anything from my brethren. I'm, I'm shaking out my pockets. I'm not gaining anything off of this. Now you shake out your pockets. I'm shaking out my pockets. You shake out your pockets. Shake them out and show that you are not stealing from your brethren and God will bless you. And if you do not shake out your pockets, it's because you're stealing from your brethren and God will curse you. Again, this is, this is old covenant type stuff because the old covenant was based upon blessings and curses. We, we have Jesus where his promises are only blessings because as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus shook out his garment and his grace has fallen into our laps. But, but this is... Pretty well. This reminds me of a story I heard uh, one time from a pastor, and he was giving somebody some, some money. Someone asked him for money, and he gave them money, and he was concerned how that money might be used, and so he, he said this, okay, how to pull the $10 bill out of his wallet, and he said, I'll give you this money, but can, can I pray for you beforehand? And the person's like, sure. He said, Lord, I pray that if this person uses this $10 bill for anything that would harm them or destruct them or harm or destruct other people, I pray that you would curse this $10 and be the last $10 that this person ever sees. <laughs> but if this person uses this $10 for anything that would encourage them, bless them, build them up, help others, God, I pray that they would see tenfold of $10. Just again and again and again, right? And it's, it's like, well, that's kind of gnarly. I, I always wanted to know how the guy respond, right? Oh, no. No, thank you. You know? Or, okay, let's go. But again, we're, we're not, we don't live with God on this basis of blessing and curses. I, I hope you understand the gospel of grace, which again, we're getting to. But, but here's the thing, guys. When Nehemiah did that, that action of shaking out his garments, the people agreed. They said, Amen. They said, so be it. Let it happen. We'll do as we said. We'll do what we promised. And, and the conflict was dealt with. And, and church, what we need to do with this lesson of the story is telling us is that we need to deal with internal opposition. We need to fix our mistakes. And we need to say together, amen. That opposition that happens inwardly uh, among God's people, it can be the hardest to correct. 
And many times it's easier to fight the opposition that's on the outside rather than the opposition that's on the inside. You know, externally we have our enemies of the world and the devil. But internally we have our brothers and sisters. We have other Christians. And I've heard it said, Jesus said, love your neighbor. And he also said, love your enemy. That's usually because they end up being the same thing. In Psalm 55, 12 through 14, there's this insight given into the idea of how external opposition can be sometimes easier to deal with than internal opposition. It says, for it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. What the psalmist is saying is that our biggest conflict sometimes comes from those who are closest to us. That we would make amends with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we'd make amends with our own immediate biological families. That we would make amends with our friends who are closest to us because those are the people where the wounds can be the deepest. And when we have conflict among fellow believers, when we have conflict in the midst of our families, it can be very destructive, and we need to understand it's got to be dealt with in an immediate way. We must humble ourselves and see our faults and forgive each other because internal oppression is of the deadliest kind. And so when this is happening, like, what does the devil see? When there's conflict among fellow believers, what does the devil see? I think he just sits back and he's like, oh, great. Finally, they're not using the sword on me. They're using it on each other. They're killing themselves. What does the world see when we're fighting each other, church? Nehemiah knew. This is what he said about those outsiders looking in in verse 9. The thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? See, the world already hates the church, and so the world just laughs at the church when they see Christians hating each other. This is not good. Ought we not to walk in the fear of our God? Amen? So let's look now at this last section that's going to give us wisdom for how to move forward. Verse 14, I'm going to read to the end. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the good part. I told my wife, I was like, Leah, I don't have any jokes for this message. 
He's like, don't worry, just preach the word of God. And so we come to this point, though, that takes a turn, lifts our spirits. We've heard the outcries, we've heard the rebukes, we've heard the corrections, but, but what about the good part? We always want to hear the good part, don't we? But, but sometimes before we hear the good part, we've got to hear the bad part. We've got to hear the ways that we've got to be corrected. And so the good part comes, where it says, moreover, I was appointed to be governor. Nehemiah is the governor of this region, and he's given this food allowance. Do you notice how much was in the food allowance? There was like an ox and six choice sheep and all kinds of birds and and wine every 10 days. That was meant just for Nehemiah. That is an overabundance of provision that was given just for one man to enjoy. And he says, I cannot take all of this to myself when there are people who are starving, when there are people who are afflicted. And so what does he do? He gets 150 men around his table every single night for dinner, and he feeds them all. 150 men, that means that he could have fed upwards to 500 men, women, and children just on the food that Nehemiah alone was given for himself. Nehemiah was a man who was given an abundance of provision and was then called by the Lord in the fear of God to be able to serve his fellow man with what he had been given. See, Nehemiah demonstrated the kind of leadership that we would all seek to have. He he took his position and, and he worked with humility. He worked with generosity. Nehemiah displayed servant leadership at its core because leaders who serve will serve as good leaders. And so he served the people, he fed the people, he he worked with the people, he lived in such a generous way, which wasn't necessarily even required of him. He had the right to receive the governor's salary, he even had a right to uh, charge a tax on the people, and he didn't do that. He didn't take money, and the money that he was given, he gave it away. And he lived in such a way that, that he prayed at the end, verse 19, remember For my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. He said, look, I have taken this position and I have not abused this power. The people before me perhaps did, but I am a a servant of yours, Lord. I want to be a servant of your people. And he asked God to bless him for the good that he was doing. That's a bold prayer, right? And and look, Nehemiah is not writing that for all of us to see. Like We're reading his prayer journal. This was his private prayer to God. God, look at all the good things I'm doing. God, would you bless your servant for the good things I'm doing? And I believe that God did. Amen? Let's pray. And then I got the worship team coming up here. Let's bring the worship team up. And we're going to look at one last thing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your truth. Um, Some hard truth. A lot of times it's easy as a church where we would get our eyes on the, on the world and, and what's happening around us externally, the external opposition. But today we heard, what about us? Where have we faulted? Where do we need to be corrected? Where do we need to serve one another out of generosity and make sure that God's people are taken care of? So God, help us to have these uh, heart attitudes, these heart postures to respond Respond to your truth in a way that we say, amen, we will do as you say. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So I want to ask the question, where do we see Jesus in all of this? 
Where do we see Jesus in all of this? I, I said I gave you the good part. This is the best part. See, the best part is this, is that we no longer live under the old covenant that was based upon blessings and curses. You know, where Nehemiah shook out the garment and he said, if you don't shake out your garment, God's going to bless you. If you don't shake it out, right, you need to demonstrate this. This is what God did. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Uh, and, and this is one of the beautiful pictures of the gospel that has been given to us. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, in the book of Nehemiah, we see that Jesus is like Nehemiah, or or rather, Nehemiah is like Jesus. We see Jesus in the story in that he's our great servant leader. We see Jesus in the story in that he hears the outcries of injustice. We see Jesus in the story in that he responds to oppression with righteous anger and action. We see Jesus in the story in that we are the ones who are enslaved to sin. We are the ones who are poor. We are the ones who are needy and crying out. And God comes to us and Jesus shook out the garment of his grace and his riches has fallen into our laps. His love, his kindness is what draws us to repentance. And when we come to repentance and we come to Jesus and we receive all of his inheritance and we become sons and daughters of the most high God, then we see in the fear of the Lord and in the love of the Lord that that we are, we are his, we're his. And so in whatever way the Holy Spirit is calling you to respond today to what you've heard, Um, I don't have any pointed application except to say, have you received the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ that out of his riches, he has lavished it upon you? And are you responding to that grace with action? Amen? Amen. Let's all stand up together. Let's worship. Let's praise our King. And we have our prayer team up here to to lead you in um, counsel or prayer. And we love you guys.